Thank you guys so much. We really appreciate it, and uh, uh, we uh, we've uh, fallen as fallen in love as we have uh, been loved, and so that's how the human heart works. And uh, so we will uh, miss you guys leaving, and hopefully be back soon, or than later. Um, <clears throat> if you didn't, does everybody have notes? Session four. Everybody got notes? Uh, so as I was praying, uh, <clears throat> Second Second Timothy four was just laid on my heart. In context to uh, the the uh, perversion of the circumcision sect in uh, chapter three, and their appetites in the first four verses. Verse 5, having the form of godliness, de denying its power, having the outward uh, appearance of godliness without the inward reality. And then he talks in the second half of chapter 3 about his own way of life, his, uh, his purpose, his faith, his patience, his love and endurance, etc. And, uh, <clears throat> and then in chapter 4, he gives the charge to Timothy in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine, and said, instead to suit their own desires, their appetites, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want them to say, which is kind of a strange uh, metaphor to use, an itching ear. It's, uh, it's an uh, image of the craving of the flesh to satisfy the itch, and uh, it's, a, it's a lack of self-control. And so the, the perversion in theology... Uh, uh, and this is the way it's always been. It's always worked this way. Uh, every major uh, doctrinal heresy is derived by individuals that for different reasons are seeking a following and to exalt themselves or position and power or, or uh, whatever the nature uh, of pride might be. But and so this is why tonight I want to work through the uh, 10 to 12 uh, passages. Usually it's only three or four that are quoted, but some selection of these uh, 12 passages get quoted as uh, support for a Kingdom Now uh, doctrine. And so what I'm seeking to establish uh, in, in uh, your midst is simply a sound instruction and a sound doctrine. A sound doctrine and sound instruction does not mean you have a perfect theology and all your T's crossed and I's dotted. That is not what's in Paul's mind at all. A sound doctrine and sound instruction means you focus on what is important on the day of salvation, on the day of the Lord. And it's the focus on the cross and the focus on the return of Jesus a soundness of righteousness and, and relating rightly before God in light of the day of the Lord and a soundness of hope that sustains a community rooted and established that they stand blameless on the day of the Lord. 
That is what a sound instruction or a sound doctrine is designed to do. It's designed to lead people out of, uh, out of compromise and sin and wickedness to keep them focused and hearing the Holy Spirit focused on the cross, obedience and repentance, working out their salvation in the resurrection with fear and trembling in this age. And so, um, and so this is, you know, when, when you deal with the Kingdom Now theology, and it's not like Kingdom Now is new. King, Kingdom Now is, you know, it's an, it's an expression of uh, the uh, issue of sovereignty within a, within a, uh, a Greek uh, worldview, like we talked about. And so it was, it's as old as Christendom from the Constantinian shift and the whole theology of the church triumphant and the church militant and the Pope is the vicar of Christ and taking the earth for uh, the glory of God and, and everything. I mean, you just you step into that world and everything is for the glory of God because this is viewed that God glorifies and reveals himself and establishes his sovereignty and his nature through power and wealth. And, and these things will reveal God in the age to come when he rules and he crushes iniquity and, and establishes righteousness on the earth. But that is not the means by which he's glorifying himself in this age. He's glorifying himself in this age by the cross. John 12, John 13, John 17, now has come the time for the Son of Man to be glorified, and the Father will be glorified also. And so God glorifies himself and reveals himself toward the rebellion and wickedness of man in this age in the cross, and he reveals his mercy and long-suffering and his nature in that way. And that is what God is doing in this age. And he's using, he's using the church in this age to reveal the cross and to be an expression and extension of the cross and to embody the cross to, uh, to a sinful world in this age. And it will ultimately climax at the end of the age because they, the reason the early church honored martyrdom is because they viewed martyrdom as the ultimate expression and testimony of God in the cross. And like Paul said in, in Colossians 1, 24, that I, I seek to fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Not that he would provide an atonement in any way, shape, or form, but that he would embody, like, like Stephen did, embody the reality of the cross to his enemies and to the world. And so at the end of the age, at the climax of human uh, sinfulness and wickedness, the Lord will do this again. And the Lord himself, as he handed his son over, will also hand the church over in global martyrdom. And it will be the Lord who will do this. It will be the Lord that raises up the Antichrist. It will be the Lord that gives, he has complete sovereignty and dominion over everything. And it will be the Lord who raises this up as a testimony to the earth and to purify his bride, Revelation 19. And through the global martyrdom, the bride will be purified in, in, uh, in the highest extent, and God will be glorified and, uh, and glorified and honored at the day of the Lord into the ages to come. And so, um, uh, so this is what I find with, 
dealing with the kingdom now doctrine is that it's always so slippery to deal with and what it comes down to is that it just uproots people from a sound instruction and uproots people from giving themselves to a life of the cross. And it confuses all of the issues and they end up going after things that God isn't doing now. He's just not doing the kingdom now. He's not doing the day of the Lord now. He's just not, he's not punishing the wicked. Revelation 11, now have come the kingdom of our Lord and God. Now he has taken his great power and begun to reign. And so it's right now Jesus is sitting at the Father's right hand waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool proclaiming through the church the repentance and forgiveness of sins. You see what I'm saying? And so when you proclaim that which is of the, of the age to come, as though it were now, when God's not doing the age to come now, he's extending the cross now, then it just confounds the whole mission of purpose of what we're doing here. And, uh, and so... Um, so that doesn't mean there aren't, you know, the gift of the Holy Spirit and the powers of the age to come. It, it, that doesn't mean that the, it just means that those are the powers. Like, like so the analogy I use is uh, an allowance. An allowance is the substance of the inheritance because our, the resurrection is, is viewed in, in the kind of child inheritance way. That language is used throughout uh, the scriptures. And so... The allowance really is the substance of the inheritance. But if the allowance is all there is and the inheritance isn't the context in which the allowance is, is interpreted, then the child completely uses the allowance all wrong. You know what I'm saying? The, the allowance is for you to prepare and do the education thing so that you can actually inherit the estate when the time comes. And so the gift of the Holy Spirit and the allowance and the substance of the age to come now is for us to walk out the cross and preach the gospel and a righteousness from God and repentance and forgiveness and saying these things so that in the age to come we'll be worthy to inherit our, our inheritance in the resurrection. And so, uh, so to call the gifts of the Holy Spirit the kingdom, where that's never, it's never called that anywhere in the scriptures, it just confounds the issue and it's like what um and so uh so that's why i uh teach on it. so um we gotta get moving i i i always qualify too much so your main three passages that are used uh in such a way for kingdom now is primarily the kingdoms at hand the kingdoms come upon you and the kingdoms within you so we'll look at those first uh the first two are just uh, uh, prophetic reiterations. And so the kingdom of God is, is at hand. The, the context of the passage, because Matthew 3 doesn't really, Matthew 3 and 4 doesn't really give a lot of uh, uh, surrounding uh, information about what the context of that passage is. And I think you've taught on this a little bit already, right? Have you guys already heard a little bit on this specific passage, the kingdom of God's at hand? Yes or no? Yes? Yes, a little bit. Okay. So Luke 3 gives, it's the parallel account, and Luke 3 gives the context that the preaching of the kingdom of God is at hand is in context to judgment. 
and it's in context to it's a bad thing and people are coming out confessing their sins and being baptized because fire is coming. And so it's the exact same thing that has been uh, said uh, throughout the prophets uh, uh, originating in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32 that the Lord is talking in context to to the wicked and that it is the Lord's to judge, it's the Lord's to avenge, for the day of disaster is at hand, Deuteronomy 32. And then it picks back up in the prophets, Isaiah 13, the day of the Lord is at hand as destruction from the Almighty will come. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, wrath, anger, etc. And, and Isaiah 13 then is what gets quoted in Matthew 24 in reference to the return of Jesus. Joel 1 Joel 1 and 2, uh, you get it uh, a couple times. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. And then Zephaniah 1, the great day of the Lord is at hand, near, near and coming quickly. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness, gloom, blackness. And in, his, in the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed. He'll make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. And so in, in the Jewish mind, the day of the Lord initiates the kingdom of God and the messianic kingdom. Um, uh, just as a qualifier, there are passages in the Old Testament and the Psalms and, uh, and uh, places like Daniel 4 where the kingdom in reference to God is referencing the domain of God in creation as a whole, the heavens and the earth are God's domain over which he rules on a throne over the heavens and the earth. And so those those type passages are referencing what I call the universal kingdom in, in which God, the the domain of the king, kingdom, that's, the, that's how the word is, that's the etymology of it. And so God rules universally from the beginning, alpha, omega, uh, the one ruling over everything from beginning to end. Just the phrase kingdom of God is a Jewish phraseology referencing the messianic kingdom and the restored Adamic kingdom on the earth, the restored kingdom of man on the earth under the throne in in the height of the heavens under God. Does that make sense? So just because that was kind of on my mind, I couldn't shake it. So anyway, so in the Jewish mind, the day of the Lord initiated the messianic kingdom and the de- and the and the kingdom of God, and this is re- this is uh, reflected in uh, Luke ten, where Jesus commissions uh, the disciples, sends them out two by two, heal the sick who are there, and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcome, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town, the six of your feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this: the kingdom of God is near or at hand. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day. And the parallel version in, in Matthew 10 says, on the day of judgment. And so the kingdom of God and the day of judgment are not uh, equated, but they're synonymous in time because the day of the Lord initiates the kingdom of God. And then in Luke 21, Jesus is talking about the end of this age, and he's referencing that at the end of this age, before the second coming, this is the hope of the church. Um, 
that at that time they'll see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great power and glory. And when these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is nearer at hand. So he's using the same language of at hand, referencing uh, the end of this age. And then the same language gets picked up throughout uh, the New Testament. For example, Romans 13. Do this knowing that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost over. The day is near or at hand. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice in reference to the resurrection a few uh, verses earlier. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, for the Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. James 5, be patient until the Lord's coming. And this is in reference to right before that when he's talking to the rich, how they've hoarded wealth in the last days. They don't pay their workers uh, fair wages, etc. And so he's talking to the church saying, be patient in context to the wickedness of man and, uh, and, uh, and the rich until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near at hand. Referencing that the rain is, is you know, an image of the day of the Lord. And then, uh, likewise, 1 Peter 4. And so, all of these things, they're simply a prophetic reiteration. And so, the kingdom wasn't inaugurated or established during the time of the prophets, during the time of John the Baptist, during Jesus' ministry, during the disciples' ministry, and then even into the book of Acts and uh, 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 post-Pentecost time. And so, the issue is, well the Lord seems to be schizophrenic in some way, that the prophets say it's near, it's at hand, it's coming, John the Baptist, Jesus, the disciples, the disciples afterwards. And so what is the issue with the Lord? And, and so the two interpretations are either the, the day of the Lord is near temporally in time, or it's near metaphysically, in which it's somehow manifesting immaterial to material. And so Second uh, Peter 3 makes it clear that the issue, the scoffing at the declaration that the day of the Lord's at hand, the scoffing at it is in reference to time. And, uh, and so Peter is dealing with this exact question that we're dealing with, and it really seems like it's the end of the age. And it really seems like the Lord's going to come now. And uh, that's the urgency of the Holy Spirit dwelling within the believer. And so Second Peter 3, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing, following their own desi evil desires, <clears throat> saying, where is this coming? It's the same now as it's always been since the creation. By the, and he says, but... By the word of the Lord, he created everything in water and by water, referencing the creation. And he says, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. 
And so by the word that he created everything, the heavens and the earth in the beginning, and by the same word that he will recreate everything at the day of the Lord and create a new heavens and new earth, um, <clears throat> they're being kept for fire and the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. I missed a verse in there where the word, by the same word, he destroyed the earth in the days of Noah with water. And so, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so the, the resolution of the seeming contradictory declaration of the day of the Lord is at hand is resolved in the time is relative to God. And that's just all there is to it. But it doesn't lift the urgency of the Holy Spirit speaking through the church that the day of the Lord is at hand. And all men everywhere need to repent and be saved from that wrath. So uh, the second one, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Matthew 12, but if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so if you look at the context as a whole, the context of a, as a whole is that Jesus drives out a demon, a deaf and dumb uh, spirit, and everybody says, could this be the son of David, the one anointed with the spirit? Um, <clears throat> because he will bind up, you know, Isaiah 24, the powers in the heavens, and the Lord will give him authority over demons, etc., and and it's, you know, all the buzz is going around. And so then the Pharisees say it's not, it's, it's, uh, it's by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that he's driving out demons. And so then you get a response by Jesus. And the response in initially is that's crazy. And then it moves into that's wrong. And then it moves into, you are motivated out of wickedness. And so it shifts, the, it, it shifts and focuses in on why the, what is being said by the Pharisees is said. And so he starts out by saying, it's crazy. If I drive out a demon, how can a kingdom divided against itself stand? All right? I mean, like if Satan wants to destroy human beings, why would Satan drive out a demon? It just makes no sense. And if so, who do your people drive them out by? Like, how? What's? it just makes no logic. But if I drive it out by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so what he's saying is the certainty of judgment upon them by their statement. And this is made clear as he progresses in the logic. And so then he says uh, the bit about the strong man, and, and uh, how's he? I don't think I have it all just in the notes there. Sorry, I kind of ran out of time and just copied and pasted from somewhere else. So he says, or again, how can, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob the house. So clearly, I've been anointed by finger of God by the Holy Spirit to bind up Satan and so I haven't been anointed by a demon to bind up the strong man 
And so then he says, whoever is not with me is against me. Who does not gather, he scatters. I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this age or the age to come. And so then he starts to say, it's crazy and it's wrong. All right? Even if I am a false prophet, I'm you don't condemn the work of the spirit you condemn the prophet right false prophets aren't the false prophets are still prophets it's just that they're false they lead men astray they 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 use they pervert their gift to draw disciples after themselves and devour people and so even if i am a false prophet you don't condemn the gift of the prophet, you condemn the prophet. And so if you had spoken, no, he's not the son of man. He's not the son of David. He's, 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 he's Looney Tunes or he's just out to build up his own thing or whatever, whatever. If you had spoken against me, there would have been forgiveness and ignorance. And so this is the nature like of Paul when he's talking about, uh, I forget where it is. Is it 1 Corinthians 4 where he's... Uh, no, that's where he's talking about. I was the greatest of sinners, but God. First no, uh, Timothy two, where he, I was the greatest of sinners, and but God had mercy on me because I did in ignorance. And so Paul was in that boat where he was persecuting Jesus, and uh, and but he was forgiven because he was persecuting the Son of Man, not persecuting the Holy Spirit. And so then he moves into. What you just said is motivated out of wickedness. All right? And so there's a clear line of logic. He's not disjunctive in, in his line of thought. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad, its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers. Which that phrase is just so intense. It's pulled from Psalm 140 and... and uh, and uh, Isaiah 56, and, and so you brood of vipers, it, it speaks of the culture of outward righteousness, but inward uh, uh, selfishness, and, uh, and uh, you, you get that idea of a den of vipers in which everybody is just like, you know, in the, it, and it's with the words that people strike each other, and it's with a smile on their face that they do it. And so uh, he says, you den of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good things stored up, and the evil man out of the evil things stored up. But I tell you that men will give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they've spoken. So the careless word is the word that they just said. It's by Beelzebub, prince of demons, that he drives out demons. For by your words you'll be acquitted, and by your words you'll be condemned. So you see that the whole response is in light of the day of the Lord. If I drive them out by Beelzebub, who do your people drive them out? For they will be your judges on the day of the Lord. And then he goes into, if you'd spoken against me, you would have been forgiven on the day of the Lord. But you speak against the Holy Spirit, you won't be forgiven against the day of the Lord because you speak that because it comes out of your heart. And on the day of the Lord, you will be condemned by your very words. 
And so the phrase, the kingdom of God has come upon you, is simply a statement of future certainty using the past tense. We do it all the time, right? Oh, he blew it based on he made a decision. Oh, he, he, he lost the election by doing that, even though the election hasn't happened. Oh, the game, the game is, the game's over, right? Or, or the game, he lost the game on that one, even though it's the third quarter. Or, uh, you know, he squandered his inheritance. He squandered his inheritance, even though the inheritance is still 40 years down the road or whatever. We speak of the surety of future events using the past tense language. And that's all he's doing here. And the problem is, is that we can't, we, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's as though the, the, you know, they're too primitive to use that advanced technique of language. But in light of, and so I, I say that just because the whole context of the response is in light of the day of the Lord and the condemnation of the Pharisees. But you don't even need the context to know what Jesus is saying because the, the idea of judgment coming upon people is so central to the law. It's just so central to the law and prophets that that phraseology would be so obvious to everybody is a really bad thing. Not a good thing. A really bad thing. Like the day of the Lord's at hand. It, may, it should make you shake and come out confessing your sins. Likewise, from the Lord, stuff coming upon you is a bad situation through the Law and Prophets. And so that's, uh, if you flip over uh, to uh, page 3, I just put uh, the main references just to give you a feel for how many times that language is used. And so it starts in Deuteronomy 28. It's used actually a few times before that, but it's used in, uh, in the language of the law. And it's always in context to uh, judgment. So Deuteron Deuteronomy 28, however, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Isaiah 51, Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained its dregs, the goblet that makes men stagger. These double calamities have come upon you. Who can comfort you? Ruin and destruction, famine and sword. Who can console you? Jeremiah 44, because you have burned incense and have sinned against the Lord and have not obeyed him or followed his law or his decrees or his stipulations, this disaster has come upon you as you now see. And then Ezekiel 7, this is what the sovereign Lord says, disaster and unheard of disaster is coming. The end has come. The end has come. It's roused itself against you. It's come. Doom has come upon you. You who dwell in the land, the time has come. The day is near or at hand. There's panic, not joy on the mountains. I'm about to pour out my wrath and spend my anger and judge you in accordance to your conduct and repay you for your practices. And then Daniel 9, where Daniel is, is praying in context to the exile, he says, just as written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet come upon us, Yet we've not sought the favor of the Lord by turning from our sins. The Lord did not hesitate to bring disaster upon us. For the Lord is righteous in everything he does. 
And then uh, Zephaniah 2, gather together, gather together, O shameful nation, before the appointed time arrives, that day sweeps on like chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. And so this is the, the context, the Old Testament context of what they're hearing in that language. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You understand? I mean, they, they, they've rehearsed the law so many thousands of times that that very language evokes an emotional response of fear. And so then you get this picked up in the New Testament. Flip over to page 4. 1 Thessalonians 2, he's talking about the persecution that the Thessalonians are undergoing in context Acts 19. And, uh, and the unbelieving Jews, they displease God and are hostile to all men in their efforts to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they're always heaping up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last or to the end. And so he uses the same past tense to reference the surety of their judgment on the day of the Lord because of the decisions they've made now. Ephesians 5, For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And then James 5, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And then Matthew 23, you snakes, and when he's speaking. And so this is kind of, it's a parallel event, obviously not parallel uh, uh, passage, parallel event of when he's rebuking the Pharisees in Matthew 23. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to Gehenna? And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that's been shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. And then Revelation 3, Jesus uses it again in context to the end of the age. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world. And so this language is so familiar in their minds of, of uh, man in his depravity getting what he deserves. And it's like a, it's, 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 uh, he, a, he, it's like a thief that comes in and breaks into, a, into the house at a moment they don't know. And the thief comes upon the house. It's, it's unexpected. It's like a snare that entraps and comes upon an animal. The day of the Lord is used in this language because man goes along in the delusion of his depravity and then the repercussions and the judgments upon it overtake him when he's not expecting it. And so this is the language that Jesus incorporates in Matthew 12 when he says... Uh, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, whom do your people drive them out? So they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
And then he gets right into your snakes and vipers, and by your very words, judgment will come upon you. Does that make sense? So it's not just, it's the context and the language of the passage that make it clear that when he's referencing the kingdom of God, he's referencing judgment and the day of the Lord. <clears throat> and he's speaking of the, of the uh, future events as secure based on the actions that are happening now. And so that logic, that logic happens quite a bit in the, in the scriptures. And uh, I just put a, uh, a couple of Colossians 3 and Ephesians 2 in which the same phraseology is used of our future inheritance in a present reality because it's the security, it's the surety of the events that have happened in the cross that have guaranteed our resurrection. And so we have been raised up with Christ, even though we still have a body of death, but we have a surety and certainty of it. And so uh, a lot of people just question me on that, and I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. It's just the nature of language. We do it all the time. They did it too. But uh, we seem to think that, uh, well, anyway. So the third major one is the kingdom of God is, uh, is within you. And this one is really simple, but... Again, it kind of tweaks because what Jesus is correcting is an insurrectionist messianic hope. He's correcting, he's correcting a Maccabean-type uh, messianic hope in which they are looking and observing throughout the land that a Messiah figure will raise up and he'll gather to himself and be anointed uh, by the Lord in that way. And by the strength of man, he will cast off uh, the uh, the wicked and he uh, will overturn and somehow initiate the day of the Lord that way and so and so Jesus is correcting that messianic expectation. We don't connect with that because within a you know within a Christoplatonic context we don't ha really have a messianic expectation. It's just not really there and so we don't really see a need for that to be corrected. But that's what's going on. And so Luke 17, I just have quoted there the NIV, which uh, does, uh, uh, does a very poor uh, uh, translation. Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God doesn't come with your careful observation, nor will people say here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. The uh, other translations say among you or in your midst because the reason there's a difference in translation there is because the you is plural. The you is plural. And so it makes no sense to say within you because that implies singular. But in your midst implies a plural reality. And uh, obviously he's not, the you isn't the Pharisees and it's not, individual believer of the Pharisees because they're full of greed and dead men's bones and everything else. And so if you flip over to page 5, um, <clears throat> which we'll get to in a second as far as this particular translation, but I would argue that the, uh, the, uh, it should be translated like the NASB and, and ESV, the translation, uh, the kingdom of God comes into your midst. 
and I'll explain why it is comes rather than is. But the context of the passage of Luke 17, he says right after that, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Men will tell you there he is or here he is. So he references the coming of the Son of Man and the coming of the kingdom of God with the exact same language. Here he is, there he is, here it is, there it is. The exact same language. So the two are obviously parallel in his mind and, and uh, equivalent in time. Um, and so do not go running after them. Do not go running after them. For the Son of Man in His day will be like lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first He must suffer many things be rejected by this generation just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Just as it was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, it will be in the, sun, in, in the coming of the Son of Man. And the point He's making is that it's like lightning from the east to the west, suddenly judgment coming down from heaven upon man. That's the point he's making. What he's correcting is the expectation that the judgment of God will be executed coming up through the strength of man in an insurrectionist messianic movement from out in the desert or in the inner courts. Okay, And we know this because the parallel passage is Matthew 24 in which you have the same uh, things happening, the same question the disciples asked the same question as the Pharisees. When will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming? What will be the observation of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. And so then he skips ahead. He gives a lot more, uh, uh, many more signs that, than in uh, Luke 17. And he says, so see, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the desert, do not go out. Don't go running after them. Or here he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there's a carcass there, the vultures will gather. And, and that's what he concludes Luke 17 with. So Luke 17 and Matthew 24 are parallel passages. And Matthew 24 adds the dimension of here it is in the inner rooms, there it is out in the desert. And, the, and the, the, uh, you get a little more commentary in Matthew 5, I mean in Acts 5 and Acts 21, in which Gamaliel stands up and says, you know, so and so, Thaddeus. And Judas, the Galilean, they gathered men to themselves, but they were killed and, and their movement was disbanded in leading a revolt uh, uh, against the wicked. And then Acts 21, Paul is questioned by the commander of the guard when he's arrested, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? And so that's the, that's the uh, insurrectionist messianic expectation that's going on in Second Temple Judaism at the time. You understand? And this is what Jesus is correcting. That the day of the Lord isn't executed like that, and that's not how the Messiah comes. The Messiah comes like lightning from the east to the west, like it was in the day of Noah, and like it was in Sodom and Gomorrah, 
suddenly judgment overtakes and comes upon men. Does that make sense? So that's the context of what he's saying, clearly. Can we all agree on that? That that's the context of the passage. And so if that's the context of the passage, then you have to interpret that specific phrase, the kingdom of God is in your midst, in light of that. And it has to mean the same thing, right? So here's all I'm setting up for is a simple grammatical, <laughs> a simple grammatical change. And this part, if you are completely unfamiliar with, with uh, language and Greek, and just let it go over your head and don't worry about it, and just, just go with the context that this is what he's saying. And so the verb to be that he says the kingdom of God is in your midst, the verb to be, we usually use it in relation to characteristic. Okay, so this chair is teal something. Right, I am tall and skinny. Uh, so you know that is far away. The the or no, that is hot. Um, so we usually use the verb to to be in relation to characteristic, but when you use it in relation to location, it takes on the 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 idea of movement. And so this pen is the floor. And so depending on how, in the Greek language, depending on what case it is used in context to, it communicates that movement. And so if you say this, this pen is accusative to the floor, it means this pen goes to the floor, right? Or if you use it with a genitive, this pen is of the floor, genitive, then you're saying this pen comes of the floor, right? And so there are a number of uh, cases in the New Testament where the, the verb to be is used in that way, like John 7, where he says, but we know where this man is from. And so the ESV and New Living Translation translates it, comes from, because it's in relation to location. Does that make sense? When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from or where he comes from. Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from or where I come from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. I do not know him, but I know him because I am uh, from him. I come from him, and he sent me. And so, so the... The same bit applies in Luke 17 in which he's saying uh, the kingdom of God is to your midst. And so the idea is motion that the kingdom of God comes to your midst. And the whole passage communicates that same idea that judgment falls from heaven upon the wickedness of men and comes upon men and, in, and, uh, and overtakes them. Does that make sense? If you're not into language and such, then it just seems like I'm, I'm twisting things, and then don't worry about it. Forget about it. But, but uh, uh, it's a, uh, it's a uh, sound argument in light, of the, in light of the context of the passage and the verb use, being used with uh, location. And then it totally resolves everything, if that's what he's saying. He's just saying, the same thing as is said throughout all the Old Testament prophets, that it's not by the sword of man 
for the strength of man that the kingdom of God is initiated and the day of the Lord is executed. The Lord comes down with fire from heaven. Okay, so those three passages I, are usually the main three that are used in context to arguing for a kingdom now doctrine. And so the context of all three of those passages, not just the phrase, at hand upon you, within you, the context of all three passages is a bad thing of judgment, produces fear, trembling, repentance. It's a bad thing aimed at unbelievers. All three of them, it's in context to being aimed at the Pharisees. You brood of vipers, you'll be condemned by your words, you, uh, and the, the you is in, uh, in Luke 17, assume the previous condemnation of the Pharisees. So it's a bad thing against unbelievers. In all three passages, the you is plural. You, brood of vipers, plural. The kingdom of God comes upon you, has come upon you, plural. And the kingdom of God comes into your midst, you, plural. And all three, the context of the passage is future, referencing the day of the Lord, right? And so that's the irony of it, is that the kingdom now doctrine takes the context, the meaning, the holistic meaning, and perfectly perverts it to communicate a good thing, a blessing. It's, it's at hand, it's come upon you, it's within you. Toward believers, individually, individual believers, in the present. Do you see what I'm saying? It's like, <laughs> how did that happen? <laughs> it's really quite bizarre. But, I mean, those three, those three phrases really are three of the most fearful warnings of the day of wrath and the coming judgment upon, uh, upon the wicked. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean the characterization is it's uh, it, it, it's it's adapted and and developed and evolved over the last uh, 1,700 years, but it's really the same Christendom idea of of uh, God is establishing His dominion through the church upon the earth uh, in this age, and so that phraseology that gets used all the time, the establishing of dominion, is a is a strange idea in its own right that he's establishing his dominion. Um, but uh, but uh, uh, I lost my train of thought. Anyway, so it always takes on the same characteristics of a drive to uh, uh, take more money and more power and more uh, influence and control in the name of God. And so this is, you know, it, it, becomes, it becomes obvious and somewhat comical when you see it in such a rigid, formalized state in the Catholic Church. And you walk around and you see the 30-foot tall doors and the inscription, to the glory of God, you know, and the huge pillars and walls and the stones to the glory of God. And everywhere it's to the glory of God. And it's this idea that the church gaining more money and power and control glorifies God and reveals God. And that's just not the case. 
meekness, humility, love, and servanthood as expressed in the cross actually glorifies God and reveals who God is. And so, um, and then after the day of the Lord, God will be glorified when the wicked are thrown into a lake of fire and the wicked are punished and the righteous are blessed. Uh, But in this age, the righteous may not be blessed. They may, they may not. You know, it's, uh, it, uh, that's all under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Um, Okay, so then the fourth main one, usually we'll just say it's the fourth, is the Matthew 11, the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing. And again, the NIV does a wonderfully botched job on this one in which they, the NIV really, I love the nearly inspired version. It's, uh, it's what I read, but they really forge the path on, uh, on Matthew 11 being interpreted as, as uh is forcefully advancing. And so before this, all the translations were the same, that the kingdom of God has suffered violence as the King James, New King James, NASB, etc. Uh, all, uh, even the Revised Standard and New Revised Standard uh, retain that language because clearly there's force happening, all right? Force. It's more than force. It's violence. All three words indicate violence, not just force. So there's violence happening. The question is, who is doing the violence and what is receiving the violence? And so clearly, the verb is in the passive. And so the kingdom of God is in the passive in relation to the violence. It is receiving the violence. It's not doing the violence. It's receiving the violence and so there's the verb about doing violence, and then there's uh, uh, the uh, noun of violent men, and then there's another verb uh, communicating violence or attacking. And so the, uh, the NIV tones down uh, all three to say forcefully advancing, forceful men, and laying hold of it to communicate that it's a good thing in relation to the kingdom of God. When the context of the passage is that John the Baptist is in prison. His disciples, or he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask if he's the Messiah. He says, look at the signs, the lame walk, the blind see, etc. His disciples leave. He turns to the people and says, what would you go out to the wilderness to see? It's not, it's he, a little bit of accusation. What are you doing? <laughs> what did you go out to the wilderness to see? Just a show? A man in fine clothes? A man, whatever? No, you went out, you should have gone out in fear and trembling, listening to what he actually said. And so then he uses figurative language. Agreed, it's figurative language. But it's figurative in relation to a reality of the future kingdom of God. And so he uses figurative language that the kingdom of God is being attacked as John the Baptist has just been attacked. And that violent men are attacking it. It's being attacked, it's suffering violence, and violent men are attacking it. And uh, the, the, the words are generally used in a negative way. The vast majority of the time, the three words 
Biazzo, Biastus, and Harpazzo are always used in context of violence, which isn't peaceful and kind and nice. And so then he uses, after saying that, he uses, a, uh, he uses an analogy of kids. And however you view the violence, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, and who's doing the violence, and who's receiving the violence. Okay, so if believers are doing the violence, and the kingdom of God is doing the violence, and it's a good thing, then you interpret the analogy of the kids one way. But if, the, if unbelievers are doing the violence and the kingdom of God is, is receiving the violence, then you interpret the analogy of the kids a different way. Okay? You interpret the analogy of the kids as a good thing according to the first way and as a bad thing according to the second way. But it's clearly a bad thing because of the way Jesus interprets it after that. And so he says, um, to what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces calling out to others. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. So what can we compare this generation? Who did you go out to see? You brood of vipers. Who, what, what, what was your motivation? What was going on in your hearts? Who can I compare you guys, this generation? You're like kids singing in the marketplace. Play us the flute, sing us a dirge. For John came neither eating or drinking, yet they said, this generation said, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. And I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And so the whole tone of the, of the passage is accusational against the crowd. And it's you and this generation that's actually persecuting the righteous and the kingdom of God. And like he says to the Pharisees, you're shutting the, king, the door to the kingdom of God in men's faces. And you're making disciples of Gehenna rather than disciples of the kingdom. So what is actually the, the figurative language that he's using in Matthew 11, he's borrowing straight out of Isaiah 60. So if you read, let's just read that, the, the language one more time. And he's pulling it straight out of Isaiah 60. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And greatness is being, uh, the assumption is righteousness. There is not risen any among women more righteous than John the Baptist. Yet... The least in the kingdom of God will be more righteous than he, referencing the age to come. For from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent uh, attack it or seize it, <clears throat> because that's the idea of seizing the prophets and, and killing them or imprisoning them like they did John. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until now, and if you're willing to accept it, he's the Elijah to come. He who has ears, let him hear. 
to what can I compare this generation? And so, um, so he's pulling out of Isaiah, the end of Isaiah 60 in context to the Redeemer coming to Zion, the glory of the Lord arising on Jerusalem. And then he says, I will make your overseers peace, in verse 17, and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no, long, shall no more be heard in your land because your shepherds are violent men. And they're not uh, 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 leading the flock in, in peace and righteousness. Devastation or destruction within your borders, you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The, sh- the sun shall no, no uh, more be your light by day, nor the brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and, and your God will be your glory. Your people shall be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least of the least one shall become a clan, the smallest a mighty nation. I am the Lord, and it's time I'll hasten it. So he's using the language out of Isaiah 60 to reference the wickedness of this generation and the righteousness of John and the persecution of the righteous who will inherit the kingdom of God. And the persecution of, from the wicked who say that the righteous have a demon or they're gluttons or whatever. Does that make sense? But if you interpret it the other way, then the children represent John and Jesus and the children singing the dirge and playing the flute are actually the good thing because they're the ones who are the, are the violent and they're taking the kingdom by force. You see what I'm saying? And so... The analogy of the kids and the interpretation of the analogy makes it clear that the context is a bad thing in reference to the wickedness of this generation and the persecution of the righteousness of the righteous. You see what I'm saying? It has nothing to do with kingdom now in any way, shape, or form. He's just using figurative language to condemn the uh, wickedness of that generation. Okay. So, um, oh, Psalm 40. So violent men, I can't resist saying it, because violent men throughout the scriptures is a negative thing. And so his reference of violent men seizing it just really confirms the emotional response that the people would have. Because all throughout the Psalms, the violent men, the wicked men are violent men. So Psalm 140, rescue me, O Lord, from evil men, preserve me from violent men who desire evil things in their hearts. They continually stir up wars. Sing me a dirge, play me a flute. They sharpen their tongues as a serpent. Poison of a viper is under their lips. May burning coals fall upon them. May they be cast into the fire, into deep pits from which they cannot rise. I know the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and the just and justice for the poor. Surely the righteous will give thanks to your name. The upright will dwell in your present presence. And so violent men are, are contrasted throughout the Psalms in, in, uh, in contrast to righteous men and peaceful men, men of peace. Because it's the peacemakers that will be called sons of God in the resurrection. And then Paul references himself as a violent man before he became converted in 1 Timothy 1. 
So, uh, okay, so the kingdom of God is a matter of peace, uh, peace, righteousness, and joy in the Holy Spirit, Romans 14. This one gets uh, quoted all the time. And so, again, uh, what Paul is saying here is how do you disciple people in light of the day of the Lord? How do you disciple people in light of the day of the Lord? And he's, he's talking in relation to the law and how discipleship happens. And so the whole context of Romans 13 and 14, because it's one continuous flow, is in relation to the day of the Lord. And what matters on the day of the Lord and what does not matter. What matters on the day of the Lord and what does not matter. And the, the way they thought about the law and discipleship is that you are discipled in light of your destiny, in light of the age to come. You are a child of the light. You are a son of the day. You're children of the resurrection. You're sons of the kingdom. And so all of this language is used because you are destined to inherit the age to come. Therefore, walk according to it. And so... Um, and so, uh, so he picks up in, uh, we'll just start in Romans 13. Romans 13, Paul says, Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. He, he lists off the commandments before that, saying, no de- Let no debt uh, uh, remain amongst you except the debt to love. Verse 11, And do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Why? Because the age to come won't have any of these things. Because we're discipled according to our destiny, which is based on how it was in the beginning, according to our design. We don't walk in these things because we weren't designed to walk that way, and we're not destined to in the future. So it's knock it off. It's not appropriate for, for believers. And so, uh, rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, figurative language. Obviously, you can't put on the body of Jesus around you. He's saying, clothe yourselves with your destiny in the kingdom as a co-heir with him in the glory to come. Clothe yourselves in righteousness as you will in the age to come. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh, the sinful nature, the desires of your body in this age. Satisfy the desires of your body in the age to come. Satisfy the desires of the resurrected body. You see what I'm saying? Clothe yourselves with Christ Jesus and your destiny in the age to come. Your resurrected body will desire righteousness. This thing does not desire righteousness, but that thing will. And so you live according to it. You walk worthy of your calling and according to it. So then, and there's no shift in idea when he moves into chapter 14. Because now he's moving into the the division and controversies in the church in chapter 14. Therefore, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. The disputable matters are 
what you eat, what you drink, what Sabbath days you observe or, or festival days, etc. He says, um, uh, verse 4, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls at the day of judgment. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. As it's written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue confess. So then, each of, uh, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Do not by your eating uh, or drinking destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. And so that's his point. The day of the Lord and the age to come is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not a matter of what you'll eat and drink because there won't be any issues with eating and drinking. The kingdom of God in the age to come is a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit and the resurrection. And so you walk according to that now, and you don't condemn one another over matters that don't matter at the day of the Lord, when each man will give an account to his master. You see what I'm saying? So the whole context is in light of the day of the Lord and being discipled in righteousness in the day of the Lord. And the, the logic of it is that you behave as in the daytime. And the daytime is a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit not a matter of eating and drinking, right? And so then he goes on. Um, so whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourselves and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but the man who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. And so this is the discipleship model. Anything that under the Holy Spirit, you know is wrong in the age to come in faith, and you have doubts about it, yet you continue to do it, you're walking in sin. Because you know that's not your destiny, and that's not how you ought to function. Because the Holy Spirit's convicting you on it, and you have doubts. Does that make sense? Okay, so... Um, so the Old Testament background is uh, Isaiah 2, is passages like Isaiah 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. Many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, because that's what they're having the issue in the, in the church of Rome, is what are the ways of God, right? And Paul's saying, the ways that will be taught in the age to come our righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It won't be the ways that will be taught from Jerusalem when Jesus returns is not particulars on eating and drinking. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They'll beat their swords into plowshares and pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for uh, war anymore. So there's righteousness and there's peace. Uh, kind of those two ideas referenced here. And then he says, Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And so let us behave as in the daytime. Let us walk in light of our destiny. And then he goes in the rest of chapter 2 to condemning Israel and how they are 
They exalt themselves, and, and the Lord has a day set out for the arrogant to humble them, which, chapter 2, that's what Jesus is quoting in context to the Pharisees. Don't let any man call you teacher or rabbi or father, because you only have one, and these guys do it to exalt themselves. But whoever exalts themselves will be humbled, and whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. It's extremely confrontational, and it's quoting Isaiah 2. Anyway, Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He, set, he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. So you're getting the, 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 uh, the, uh, the components, the ingredients of the age to come. This is what the kingdom of God is about. It's about righteousness going out from Jerusalem. It's about peace being established on the earth. It's about captives being released. It's about the blind seeing. Um, it's about uh, so brokenhearted being healed, the freedom of captives, the release from darkness of prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, so joy, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, They'll be called oaks of righteousness. Everlasting joy will be there, for the Lord loves justice. And so this is where he's getting the language. The kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in context to the resurrection of the Holy Spirit. So therefore, in context to your disputes amongst the church at Rome and you're segregating out and condemning one another over disputable matters that probably won't even matter at the day of the Lord and in the age to come. You see what I'm saying? So that's his, that's his logic there. Um, so Paul uses the same uh, discipleship logic as in uh, Ephesians 5. For to this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man's idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Therefore, don't be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light, children of the kingdom of Christ and of God. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. And 1 Thessalonians 5 uh, has the same kind of bit. So then we come to the parables. Okay, So addressing kingdom now theology is akin... uh, is, is akin to addressing the stronghold. It's the, it's the same bit with any stronghold. There's an overarching philosophy that always happens, and then there's the specific evidences that happen that hold it up, right? So like evolutionism, death is the means to progress. That's the overall philosophy. That thing's wrong and wicked. And then there's the specific evidences of uh, homologous structure and Darwin's finches and peppered moths and Yuri uh, Miller experiment and all these things are the, that get repeated from like third grade to postgraduate that then those specific ones they reinforce the overall philosophy that then everything else is interpreted in light of right and so the kingdom now uh, philosophy is the same way where the philosophy the 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 idea that God is punishing the wicked and rewarding the righteous, that God is delegating recompense now. That's wrong. It's not true. The day of the Lord is not yet. It has not come. And God is extending mercy and repentance and forgiveness of sins now. 
But there's the specific evidences. The kingdom of God's at hand, is upon you, within you, forcefully advancing, etc., etc. And you try to deal with one, you try to deal with the specific evidences without dealing with the overall philosophy, and the overall philosophy holds. You try to deal with the overall philosophy and the specific evidences hold. You see what I'm saying? And so this is where turning people from it takes, like Paul said, preach the word and season and out, encouraging, rebuking, correcting, using the scriptures uh, to establish people in, with careful instruction and sound doctrine, to establish people in righteousness based on the cross and in hope of the return of Jesus. And so the, the, the parables in that analogy kind of become the ground upon which the, the poles and the canopy hold within the kingdom now doctrine because it's the parables that are really the foundation of Jesus, the mystic, deceptive mystic who's bringing in the new revelation of the kingdom slowly. And, uh, and he uses it through speaking parables. And so the parables are not introducing a new idea of the kingdom. No new information on the kingdom. They're dealing with issues of the iniquity and depravity of man and the righteousness of God. Every one of them. Every one of them. And so if you just do a study with a normal brain, I, like I don't even know, like sometimes I'm just like, just read it. I beg you. Just, what is he saying? Like, and you just work through the parables, and every parable is a direct rebuke of wickedness and unrighteousness indirectly pointed at the Pharisees. Every one of them. Every single one of them. And so uh, the one that usually gets quoted most is uh, Matthew 13 and the mustard seed and the, and the leaven. And so uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took out and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so all the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. And so he's quoting Daniel 4, literally, at the end there. That's a direct quotation out of Daniel 4. So in everybody's minds, immediately, that's bad. That's a bad situation, right? And then he says the kingdom of God is like yeast worked into dough that spreads throughout the whole thing. Yeast, bad thing. Generally, yeast is a bad thing in all of the scriptures. And he uses the teaching of the yeast with the Pharisees. And so what's being spoken in all of the parables, specifically within that chunk of Matthew 13, and then it becomes more clear like in the, you know, in, in the account, in the Lucan account where those parables get split out and they're used in different contexts. And the context that they're used in Luke is even more evident that they're bad things in relation to, uh, in relation to unrighteousness, uh, specifically the Pharisees. And so... Um, uh, so, the, 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 how Jesus explains his parables is really simple. He quotes Isaiah 6. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, Paul quotes it once. Isaiah 6 gets quoted. And Isaiah 6 is the key to understanding the parables, very simply. 
And so he says, Matthew 13, And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, To you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, has, to him more will be given. Whoever has repentance and righteousness, to him more will be given in the age to come. And he who will have an abundance, but he who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him at the day of the Lord. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see. While seeing the hope, they do not see how to attain it. They attain it, Romans 9, as if it were by human effort and and works of of the law. Though seeing, they uh, do not see. Where is he? I lost my... uh, And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, otherwise they would see with their ears, uh, see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and turn. And so it, this is quoting Isaiah 6, and Isaiah 6 is actually a day of the Lord passage. I'm, I know this might be a little more to swallow than, but Isaiah 6, the, the context of it is he sees the Lord sitting in his heavenly temple, and the foundations shake, of the heavenly temple and it's filled with smoke and there's the crying of the holy 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 etc and all this is picked up in revelation and it's clear in revelation that it's in context to the day of the lord specifically revelation 15 8 when the heavenly temple is filled with smoke and then the angels come out and pour out the bowls of wrath right and so uh, Isaiah is he's looking up he has an open vision of the Lord sitting enthroned over creation everything see, singing holy 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 the earth is filled with his glory referencing the day of the Lord and the earth being filled with his glory the foundations shake the temple fills with smoke and it's like ah fire's going to come down and consume the earth right woe to me a man of unclean lips who dwells among a people of unclean lips and wickedness. And then the coal is taken from the altar and seared upon his lips. And then the voice comes out and says, who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And the Lord says, go to this people. Tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. So this is the language that Paul is pulling from in Romans 11 with the Israelites, that the Lord is ultimately responsible for the hardness of heart of the Israelites and the blindness of the Jews. But then after that in Isaiah 6, he says, How long will I say it? And the Lord says, Until the cities are desolate and the land is destroyed. But leave a seed, and there will be a holy stump in the land, which is where Paul is pulling that they will be saved, and the, and the hardness and blindness will be lifted, uh, among other places. But specifically, Isaiah 6 uses that language that Paul is using in Romans 11. And so the point of the, the, point of the parables is that they're dealing with the issues of wickedness 
in the human heart and unrighteousness of man in relation to response to the day of the Lord. Every parable, that's what it's dealing with, is the rebellion of man. And so the language that is used, the kingdom of God is like, is figurative in that it's not speaking of the direct characteristic of the age to come. It's speaking about the administration of things unto the age to come. You see what I'm saying? So it's, it's, it's like saying, man, the 2008 elections, they were like just a big mess and really whatever, you know. It, you refer to the whole thing, the whole sequence of events that lead up to the elections. But you refer to it as a whole and you use figurative language in that way, right? And so that's all he's saying is that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is like uh, a man who goes out and sows seed into his field. And there's the, there's the wheat, there's the tare. He brings up good and bad fish. He preaches the word of the day of judgment. Some receive it, some don't, some repent. Some live in light of the age to come. Some are bogged down in thorns, etc. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who settles accounts with his people. He forgives a guy a great amount, but then he doesn't forgive his brother. And whoever doesn't forgive his brother will not be forgiven on the day of the Lord. Matthew 20, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in the vineyard, right? And some in the morning, in the afternoon, or noontime, afternoon, evening, they all get the same pay at the end of the day. And then flip over... Um, Matthew 21, a landowner planted a vineyard. He put a roll around it, dug a wine press, watched how he rented it out to some farmers and went away. He came back to receive. They killed the people he sends. He thinks, I'll send my son. They kill him too. The kingdom of heaven is like a king, but when he comes back, what should happen to those guys? They should be lined up and destroyed. And then Matthew 22, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepares a wedding banquet for his son. Go out, bring the people in, but they're too busy. They have things to do in this age, money to make, etc. So go out and bring people in from the highways and byways unto uh, the, the wedding feast. Matthew 25, at that time, the kingdom of heaven. Of course, at that time is the end of the age. So every parable ends in the day of the Lord. Every parable ends in the day of the Lord. And they're always referencing the events of human wickedness in relation to the righteousness of God and the response to the day of the Lord. Every parable. It's not changing the information of the age to come. It's just talking about human beings and how they respond in light of their own depravity and in light of what's coming in the age to come. Does that make sense? You see what I'm saying? And so then uh, you have your other debatable passages which are fairly simple. Matthew 6. Uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so that's obviously in light of the day of the Lord. And if you forgive men their sins, then you will also be forgiven. But if you don't, you won't be forgiven. Likewise, Matthew 16, who do men say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, that's very good, Peter. That wasn't revealed to you by man. Nobody came along and added up and tallied all the evidence and said, you know, this guy is the Messiah. No, the Holy Spirit convicted your heart because you know I have the words of life and I speak, I speak truth and righteousness. 
and therefore has been revealed to you by my Father. And so that bit of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, loose on earth, loose in heaven, which gets quoted uh, out of Isaiah 22 and and Revelation uh, 3. I think it's in 3 or 2. Uh, is uh, the whole passage is in light of the return of Jesus and, uh, and the age to come. Um, Matthew 23, the figurative language of in the present, you know, the Pharisees and tax collectors are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Uh, and, uh, but again, the context of that, and you shut the door to the kingdom of God in, the, in men's faces, it's just using the figurative language of the present, communicating the certainty of future events because of present actions. And so because you are doing these things, that because you're setting up and you're, you're building infrastructure in such a way that you have feasts, you have meetings, you have places of honor, you have reading of scripture in this way, you have etc. You build in this way and you relate in this way and you call each other these names, etc. Then you are discipling men according to this age and wickedness and unrighteousness and you're making them twice the sons of Gehenna. You're shutting the kingdom uh, door to the kingdom of heaven in their face by what you're doing now. You're, you're, you're securing their destiny. John 18, my kingdom's not of this world. My servants would have been fighting for it. And so my servants would have been fighting for it references the motivation of righteousness and the long-suffering of God towards the wicked. And, and, uh, and uh, the kingdom not of this world is not of the character of this world rather than not of this world metaphysically. And then 1 Corinthians 4, the context is the arrogant people who are boastful and discipling men after themselves. And... Uh, and uh, and the context is Paul coming to them and disciplining them in the church. And so that is the point of the power. And he's referencing the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. When he disciplines the earth and he throws them into a lake of fire with a big whip. Would you rather me come to you with a little whip or with gentleness and love? He's not going to, when Jesus comes, he's not going to, like, like Tim Miller says, Jesus isn't going to throw the wicked into a lake of fire with footnotes. He's not, going to, he's not going to bring fire upon the earth with a public speech. He's actually going to come and he's going to grab them with angels and throw them into a lake of fire. And he's going to kill them and destroy the wicked. There's actually going to be power involved. You see what I'm saying? So that's, that's what he's referencing is that the kingdom of God is a matter of of righteousness and real discipline. And I am, and we'll see what these guys, if they actually discipline righteousness or if they're just talking and talking and talking and, and manipulating and persuading and et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, so then Colossians 1, uh, you have uh, more of the language of security of the future and all of the context around Colossians 1 even the verse before is clearly the endurance and the patience unto the kingdom of God. But because of the cross and the blood of Jesus, we have been transferred and our destiny is secure and therefore we find 
perseverance and patience and we find encouragement to walk in righteousness until the return of Jesus because of the surety that God sees in the cross. Does that make sense? So again, just to conclude that it, it, I, the, the, the difficulty of doing this is that it feels like I just took 12 passages and tried to, tried to twist them around to say they're not kingdom now. All I did, because I didn't get a chance to do the other 120 passages that are clearly in context to the future and are clearly obviously in the future. I mean, it's just like, and so there's not a weight of evidence on that side so that when we work through these 10 to 12, oh, well, these also are in context to the future. And they're also, you know, Jesus is communicating in relation to the future. Does that make sense? All right. A couple of question and answer before we... There's nothing like the apologetic speaking. <laughs> it wears after a while, but it's, uh, it's needed at times. Questions, thoughts... Right. There's, right. So there's 162 times that uh, Basileia kingdom is used in the New Testament. Fifteen of those times references kingdoms of men, kingdom of Herod, etc. 147 times reference God in some way to the kingdom. And so about 120 are just obviously right in context pointing to the future.